a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm your host, Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster from the Twin Cities metro area. This podcast is dedicated to the sportscasting business and sharing stories and advice from professionals at all levels of the industry. This is episode 80, and I'm recording from the Say the Damn Score studios in my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota. Today's guest is David J. Halberstam. He's the owner and operator of SportsBroadcastJournal.com, former executive vice president of Westwood One Sports, former voice of St. John's University, and former voice of the Miami Heat. He's written two books on the sportscasting business and has pretty much seen it all. David J. Halberstam, thanks for coming on the show today. It's a real honor. Well, Logan, the pleasure is mine. I can tell you that. So what I'd like to do to break the ice with just about everybody that I have on is just ask what point in your life did you know that you wanted to get into sportscasting? What point in your life did you say, hey, this is what I want to do? Well, it was probably in back of my mind in high school days when I became a basketball fan more than any other sport. And in those days, you're talking about the late 1960s, and certainly cable television was not born yet. Cable didn't come into existence until uh, the late 70s or the early 70s, if you consider CATV, which stands for Community Antenna Television, where little hamlets away from major cities uh, created their own little cable companies for one reason, not programming, but more so to be able to pick up the signals of television stations in major markets that didn't sail more than 75 miles. So if you lived 150 miles away, you couldn't get any television. So that was the origin of cable television. And then, of course, it grew with programming of its own. And it's mammoth now. And now even cable is under attack because of everything available online. But back in my day, cable wasn't even born yet. You'd listen to many games on radio. And there were two announcers who I loved on basketball at the time. One was Marv Albert, who called games on New York radio and did the Knicks all those years. And another guy was a name not as well known, but he did the ABA in the New York market. Um, the old uh, New Jersey Americans, they're now the Brooklyn Nets, once they merged with the NBA. And a fellow named Spencer Ross, a longtime New York sportscaster, was an excellent basketball announcer. So I grew up listening, listening to the two of them, Ross and Albert, and interestingly, both were students and protégés of the great Marty Glickman, who really gave the game uh, its nomenclature, its language, its lingo on radio and basketball, and the NBA came into existence in the mid-1940s. So those were the two guys, uh, Marv Albert 
and Spencer Ross who influenced me. And then the other thing one would do uh, as a sportsman, because games were not readily available, is back then, another point, FM radio was not really popular yet. Um, AM radio dominated uh, all of radio. Perhaps at that point, 90 to 95% of its listenership until FM uh, listenership swelled in the 1970s. But you would try to pick up stations from out of town. So, for instance, a guy like myself living in Brooklyn, I was able to get stations in Pittsburgh and in Detroit and St. Louis and Cleveland and Philly. And you'd have a chance to listen to some other great announcers. Uh, whether it was Joe Tate who did the Cleveland Cavaliers or someone like Jim Carvelis who did the old uh, Baltimore Bullets or Andy Musser with the Philadelphia 76ers and the great Johnny Most who did the Boston Celtics. So we would have the opportunity at night when those AM signals really carried and you were able to listen to those games. So those were the announcers who influenced me. In addition, of course, to Marty Glickman, who at that point of his career was just doing football on radio. You said who influenced you. When did you decide, you know what, I want to try to pursue what these people who influenced me did as a career? Well, going into college, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And then I started hanging out with guys who were helping out with the basketball team. I went to a small school, Hunter College, which is part of the City University of New York system, CUNY, which is the largest urban university uh, college or system in America. Schools like Brooklyn College and City College and Hunter College and Queens College representing each of the boroughs. And one of the guys is still involved in sports, Mickey Morabito, who's the traveling secretary for the Oakland A's and has been for 30 years. And another guy who's a pretty good sports talk show guy, was very popular in Cincinnati in his day, Andy Furman. He does work for Fox. And there was another young man named Barry Kipnis who would do the games into a tape recorder because the school did not have a radio station. He was excellent. He tried to get work when he was done with school as an announcer and there weren't many jobs available then so he went into finance and he's a an executive vp with a big bank in new york so they were all successful in their own way but i was hanging out was really the business guy uh, trying to find sponsors and trying to find ways to promote the team and i eventually uh, took all the schools in the cutie system uh, and did a game of the week, found a radio station in New York to carry the games. And initially I did color with this Barry Kipnis who did play by play. But when he went off and worked full time, I started doing the play by play. And then I said to myself, man, I could do even better than this. And I looked around the city and St. John's University had the uh, premium or premier uh, basketball program in New York City. Uh, They were uh, number one year in and year out. They'd win 20 games every year. They had a great colorful coach in Luke Karnaseka, but their games were not on radio. None of them. So I went over and uh, I was a little rash. I spoke to the athletic director and I said, how about trying to get these games on radio? 
And I started visiting each of the radio stations in New York, and they laughed at me because even some of the professional teams, there were three hockey teams and two basketball teams, couldn't get their games on radio. But I went and saw a radio station out in the uh, suburbs up at Long Island, and uh, the general manager said, I'll carry the games, and I thought I died and went to heaven. But unfortunately... Or fortunately, really, uh, he said, I'll let you do the games and I'll carry the games and I'll pay for all the costs. But you're going to have to sell the sponsorships. I said, sure. What does that mean? I had no idea, really. Did some at CUNY, but not in a big commercial world. And uh, he turned around and he had a credenza in the back of his desk. And he pulled out this big, fat, thick book and he placed it on his desk right in front of me. And I was sitting in behind um, the desk, so to speak, in the visitor's chair. And he said, start at page one. It was the yellow pages. And he said, just knock on doors and find the sponsors. <clears throat> Long story short, I was pretty good at it and uh, <clears throat> was able to bring in sponsors and made the program pretty successful. So I did those St. John's games, and the team started growing, the Big East began to blossom, <clears throat> and eventually I was able to get the games off that small radio station on a major New York station, WCBS, and I was doing the game. So just like that, <clears throat> over the course of 10 years, um, I was calling games D1 for a big school uh, in the major market, the biggest in the country on a major radio station. Now, concurrently, overlappingly through all those years, I had to make a real living. So I went to work because I knew I was good at sales for a big station rep that represented tons of radio stations. People will know this name if they've been in the business. Uh, it's called Cats Radio. They're now owned by iHeart. And um, I was their head of sports, and I made a good living doing that. We were employee-owned, so... Um, it worked out financially very well for me. But once St. John's got on that big station, my income from St. John's grew. And then I said, look, I'm going to leave cats. I'm going to start a little business. And I went to Madison Square Garden where the Knicks and Rangers, believe it or not, did not have all their games on radio. They just did home games and select road games. And I spoke to the president of the garden and I said, look, why don't you put all your games on separate stations and let's get this thing profitable. Long story short, I did. So here I am doing St. John's play-by-play, -play, selling St. John's, making good living doing that. And then now having the rights to the selling rights to sell Nixon Rangers. And I did real well for the garden and for myself. Now about a year or so in the president of the garden went, listened to me do St. John said, our radio announcer, Jim Carvelis, will be missing a few games. Can you fill in for him? I never did the NBA. So talking about dying and going to heaven again, there it was. And I started doing backup games for the Knicks while I was doing St. John's and selling both Knicks Rangers and St. John's. And uh, I started to enjoy it. So those years, I was the backup announcer for the Knicks as well as uh, the uh, permanent voice of St. John's. In 1992, 
um, the owner of the Nets, uh, excuse me, the owner of the uh, Heat, who was the general manager of the Nets, Lou Schaffel, and he knew me from his New York days, and he says, come down to Miami, I'm going to make you the head of corporate sales for the Heat, and I'll make you the permanent play-by-play announcer. So I came home at that point. I had been married three or four years, maybe five years. And I told my wife, who's a physician and was working as a physician at Cornell in New York. And I said, we're moving to Miami. Well, Logan, those were the roughest few months for me because she didn't want to move. But we've been in Florida now for, what, 26 years. So I went down there. And uh, I uh, did the Heat Games. She got a job teaching medicine at the University of Miami, still there. I was with the Heat for six years. There was an ownership change. And uh, I decided to leave. And that's when I went back into sales full time. And I became head of sales for Westwood One Sports. I did it out of Miami. I was really did it often on airplanes all the time. And... Uh, a number of years later, they promoted me to EVP, and I ran all of Westwood One Sports sales, our partnerships with the NFL and the NCAA and the NHL, Notre Dame, and more. And uh, I had the talent report into me, production report into me, and uh, I promoted a guy named uh, Howie Denneroff, who I believe you interviewed, and uh, mm-hmm. gave him his VP stripes. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we'll pause there, and I want to just go back, and there's a lot of things in there. And the first one is, you know, my path through radio has always been attached with local broadcast sales as well. You had, uh, where did you get your training, and where did you learn how to talk to a client after, on cold calls, just knocking on the door and uh, making sure that... Uh, you have what they need. How did you learn to sell? <clears throat> well, I wrote two books, as you pointed out early. One was on the history of broadcast sports. Um, I'm con- I consider myself a broadcast sports historian. And uh, the other book I wrote was in 2016 on cold call selling. It's called The Fundamentals of Sports Media Sponsorship Sales. And um, it uh, it takes a great effort to be able to be good in sales. Uh, the book I wrote has been adopted as a text in sport management programs across the country uh, by about 25 schools because I teach that. That's the other side of me that we really don't talk about a lot. So um, the first thing you need to be good in sales is hunger. And if you don't have hunger, that's something that can't be taught, Logan. You either want to succeed or you don't. You either want to sell or not. I've hired a lot of good salespeople through the years. I've also hired some bums. But I can tell you that when the candidate is applying for his job and interviewing under me and he's on the other side of the desk, and I ask him uh, about him, about himself, and I ask him to give me a little bit of his background, and he says one thing to me, and I can write him right off. If he says, so I've been thinking about doing sales. That's wrong. You've got to want to jump across that employer's desk and say, I'm going to kill for you. You either want to do it 
or not. It can't be an ancillary thing where I'm just doing it because I want to be on the air. Or if you're going to do it, you got to do just sales and do nothing else. You've got to be very competitive, and that's hunger you can't teach. The other two requirements, one of them you can't teach, which is organization. When you're cold calling, you're making tons of calls, and you have to stay organized. When to follow up, who you called, you've got to log your calls, you've got to code your your emails and create little colors for each one. Very, very critical. If you're not organized, when you've got a lot of things going on, you're doomed to fail. The third thing is intuition of where to go to try to find the new advertiser or new sponsor. Intuition is the vapor of experience. Uh, it comes, uh, you get better at it within a course of time. When you're starting out, you think a company that produces cosmetics is going to be good for sports, but it won't because they're trying to reach women. So you learn over a course of time who uh, would be good for sports, who can take advantage of it, and who cannot. So those are the three requirements. And I always knew I'd be good at sales. Uh, I'm persistent. That's one of my strengths. And I'm organized. And I like being with people. So um, those are just three of the qualities. Um but again, get my book, The Fundamentals of Media and Sponsorship Sales, Developing New Accounts, and you'll pick up a lot. So there's the long answer, Logan. <laughs> I can tell you, usually when I have people on who have books published, I buy it and have a chance to read it. We didn't have time uh, to do that before we recorded this, but I'm really interested in your book on on New York sports media. And I find that fascinating because there are so many great broadcasters that came out of that location. What made you decide you wanted to write that book, and what influence does being from New York have on you particularly as a broadcaster? Well, New York is really where sports radio was born. Uh, yes, you will hear that in 1920, uh, KDKA, the radio station in Pittsburgh, was the first to call a game, and they did that. But in the early years of radio, uh, programming was really fed by the networks, and the networks were all situated in New York. Um, so I always loved the history. I'd hear about great broadcasters of the past, and I would be like a sponge. I'd soak everything up that I can hear, that I can read, that I would hear from the old announcers. Because again, growing up in New York, I had an ability to talk to Marty Glickman. I had an ability to talk to Bill Mazur. I had an opportunity to talk with the great boxing announcer, Don Dunphy. And those guys were born like in 1900. So they could pretty much tell me about the history of sports radio in a narrative way right off the uh, top of their head. And I knew a lot about it until 1985 or 86. And at that point, there was a radio station. It was the precursor to WFAN, WNBC in New York. And they had a nighttime sports talk host by the name of Dave Sims, who now does 
the Seattle Mariners on TV. And Dave had me on as a guest uh, talking about the history of broadcast sports. And a fellow calls in, and this was pivotal, and um, he was sightless. Uh, his name, Dick Barhold. And he would call in these sports shows, uh, call into them, and he would be Richie from, or Dick from Corona, which is a section of Queens. This guy, he's no longer alive, um, was a savant. You could give him any date uh, in time uh, of his existence and say October 3rd, 1953, within five seconds, he'll tell you the day of the week it was, which teams in New York were playing, what stations they were on, who the announcers were, and so on. So after the show was over, he had called in, and he had a question, or we talked, or he had a comment. I asked the producer to get his phone number. And after the show, we talked. And I probably spent a couple thousand hours on the phone with him until he got sick and passed in 2009 or 2010. And I would document tons of the stuff he gave me. And that enabled me to write the book. And I pay a great tribute to him in the book because without him, I could not have written it. Today, you get a lot of it online. But um, Dick may have been the source to a lot of it because he knew uh, year by year the announcers for each of the teams in New York, but beyond that, nationally as well. So uh, that got my interest, uh, uh, my interest in in broadcast sports to a new height uh, once I met Dick and spent time with him. And uh, I now uh, am a member of, I'm a voter for the Fort Frick Award in baseball as a historian. And I, every time I vote, I think of Dick because without him, uh, there's a lot of information I never would have gotten. So I don't know if you you know this, but I'm going to guess you do. There's a little bit of a Northeast accent in uh, in your voice. That's obviously. <laughs> I would hope I was born and raised in Brooklyn. <laughs> but what I was going to say was becoming the voice of the Miami Heat and having kind of the thick New York accent was that ever an issue? No, because Miami to begin with is considered. Uh, the fifth or the sixth borough, the sixth borough, because there are so many transplanted New Yorkers who live there. So that's issue number one. But if you look around network TV today, you've got Marv Albert, who's trying to lose a lot of his accent, but he's a Brooklyn boy. Marty Glickman, who did work nationally, he was a Brooklyn boy. Um, and um, so many others. In fact, Ted Using, one of the first sports announcers ever, he was a New York boy, and there's a little New York accent in, in his work. And the thing, Mike Brains and other, and the thing you have to consider, and Bob Costas, by the way, is that today there is less emphasis on the tenor of someone's voice or even his accent. Um, and that's just the way broadcasting has evolved. So, no, that was never an issue. Did try to lose it, but... Uh, I try to enunciate, but I'll always have a New York accent uh, 
just as you might, uh, being from the upper Midwest, there's a certain accent. But I think the world, or the world in the U.S., I should say, the U.S., there's less and less accents because we're becoming one big society, um, listening and watching a lot of TV. And I'm not sure the, the accents are as distinct, the Bostonian or Southern or Midwest. Uh, things have changed. It's time to pause for a brief moment to talk to you about STAA. That is, of course, the Sportscasters Talent Agency of America, uh, owned by John Chelesnik. I want to tell you a little story of how STAA has helped me. When I moved to Minnesota, I had no job prospects. I just wanted to be in a major market and tried to work my way up and find jobs as I went. John Chelesnik gave me really good tips on how to cold call employers, both at radio stations, at colleges, at streaming production companies. And since then, I've picked up work covering high school sports. I've picked up opportunities to cover college sports, both at the Division II and Division III levels. And I've been able to make a lot of great contacts to a lot of different people because I was able to cold call effectively. SDAA also helps you to become a better broadcaster with tools to improve your craft, and they also give lots of excellent strategies that help sportscasters at all stages of their career to find work in the field. Right now, if you sign up for STAA at staatalent.com slash say the damn score or you can click at the sign up sheet at the bottom of the webpage with the show notes to this podcast and you'll get a free ebook the smart way to get a broadcasting job a complete guide to cold contacting employers by John Chelesnik this ebook spills all the juicy tips on how to make your cold calls land it also helps to support this podcast because anytime somebody signs up for STAA through staatalent.com slash say the damn score, I get a very small commission to help support the site and continue to keep these podcasts coming. So if you're interested, if you're on the fence on signing up for STAA, this is the perfect time to do it. Please use the link at the bottom of the show notes or just type in staatalent.com slash say the damn score. And now back to the podcast. Covering the Miami Heat from 92 to 98, that was a lot of when they were playing, they were big rivals with the New York Knicks, who I'm going to just go off on a guess and a tangent and say that you were probably a big fan of growing up. Was it weird to have to be on the other side of that rivalry and support the Miami Heat uh, against some of the best Knicks teams of all time? Um, It was a lot of fun. Um, I can tell you that. We had some great matchups with the Knicks, some fights. You may remember Jeff Van Gundy. Uh, jumping onto the floor when he was coaching the Knicks and grabbed the leg of Alonzo Mourning. There were some wild times, but when Pat Riley came to the Knicks, to the Heat from the Knicks, things changed. We had Kevin Lockery who was coaching, and he had some success. But in 95, uh, Mickey Harrison took over the ball club from Louis Chaffel, and the first thing he did is he brought Pat Riley down, and that changed the face of the franchise and the 
um, performance and on the court and the success of the franchise. And before you knew it, 97, they were in the Eastern Conference uh, Finals. And uh, Miami is a front-running town, I'll say it, even though I live there. And um, when the team started winning, uh, they really threw a lot of support behind the team. Folks down there did. So things were different um, once Riley came. And uh, he is a great general manager and a great president. Um, And um, he's done an outstanding job. Do you specifically remember your call of the, the Jeff Van Gundy latching on to Alonzo Mourning's leg and how it went? I really don't remember it specifically. Um, I can tell you what what got me lucky down there uh, as far as fans are concerned is there was a great, very popular Miami talk show host by the name of Neil Rogers. He's no longer alive. And Neil had the most popular talk show. It was a general talk show, but he was a big sports fan, so he talked a lot of sports and uh, he loved the work that I did. And we had Dan Marley on the team, and he'd occasionally hit threes from out of space, so to speak. And uh, one time he had such a big three, and I said, he took that shot from the moon, from the moon. And he, he kept replaying that. And uh, they had a lot of faith in Neil, and the fans had a lot of faith in me. Um, so my popularity grew there, uh, and as the team was successful, um, uh, my success uh, was was um, helped out as well, or, or my my like, or, or the, the fans' popularity, or the fans' acceptance of, of my work, and um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So I did that for six years full time. I don't miss it at all now uh, because what has happened is they've put the radio announcers up in the boondocks. You can't see the game anymore. We used to be down on the floor. And um, you do anything long enough, um, at this point in my life, I don't think I can ever go back and do that. But my first year out, when I made the transition to Westwood One, it was a, a difficult transition because I had to get up every morning and go out and visit clients and get on my sales staff and do all those things. So um, that was a tough transition. But uh, after a while, uh, I enjoyed what I was doing there. But, um, you know, the radio uh, business has changed dramatically. Um, Hockey is really in trouble with radio. The NBA getting themselves into deeper trouble, but they're so well financed that may not be as bad, but uh, today people gravitate to TV and their smartphone and streaming, uh, and radio is not as indispensable as it once was. I guess, what do you see as the future of sports radio? Do you see it being uh, in long-term trouble, or do you think there's always going to be a place for, at least we'll call it an audio broadcast of a game? Uh... I don't know. I'm not quite sure that I have an answer to that that's very positive. Um, I think uh, radio is in trouble. Um, revenue is down. Uh, 
you see, let's go back and I'm going to give you an answer based on sponsorship sales. Uh, teams essentially own many of these rights. Uh, the broadcasters themselves don't want to get themselves too engaged in buying rights. So you see fewer stations buying rights and more teams uh, keeping the rights themselves and uh, selling the sponsorships themselves as well. So they'll then go out to an advertiser and offer a partnership. It's not even called a sponsorship. It's not even called advertising. They create a partnership where they have the intellectual rights to the logo and other things. But they come out with a menu the team rep does and says, look, we can send you signage. We can send you television. We can send you digital. We can send you signs over the urinal. We can do promotions. Uh, we can do sales contests. We can send you suites, uh, premier seating, all those things. And by the way, we can send you radio. So the people who make the decisions today are young. They didn't grow up with radio. So radio is dismissed. Uh, they don't need it. The teams don't for a, from a revenue standpoint. Fewer people listen. So when revenue is going down, ratings are going down, why do it? So the first domino that will fall will be hockey. The second will be basketball. Whether they, basketball and hockey continues to exist on on-air, I think in many ways it will because radio stations, AM stations in particular, sports stations don't know what else to run at night. Um, but the last two that will go will be football and baseball. Uh, but listenership is down and sponsorships are down. In the old days, all those spots were sold going into the season, most of them. Now they sell maybe 30, 40% of it and just hope that in the scatter market, as they say, we'll sell the rest. But uh, it's become difficult. What steps do you think that the sports radio industry in general can do to fix that? Uh, not a lot, um, because, again, it's technology that's killing them. Technology enables um, a, uh, a listener, a viewer, a fan to get the game right then and there. You know, you could see the game. And even in your car, if people, unfortunately, can look at their smartphone or um, – find other ways to keep up with things. They'll, they'll do the video screen and play it through the media button of their car. So the appeal for the detail of radio, uh, I'm not quite sure uh, will remain active or remain robust uh, as it once was. You know, you could see maybe when a guy who was a legend retires, you know, like this week, you had Bob Lamey, the longtime voice of the Indianapolis Colts. He retired in the middle of preseason. He was just tired. He's close to 80 years old. A you know, legendary guy, an opinionated guy, football. Folks may shut down the sound on TV and listen to Bob, but whoever succeeds him will have a more difficult challenge of keeping that audience because it'll take time for him to build his legacy. So, uh, I can't say to you that there's a, a promising future. Whether it will die, I don't know. Radio has always found a way to 
uh, avoid its death, like, you know, a cat that's got nine lives. They were able to uh, survive the birth of television, uh, the birth of cable, uh, the birth of the Internet. But it's, uh, I, I just think that they're dying a death of a thousand cuts. And uh, whether or not uh, uh, they can continue, I don't know. Even talk shows today, you know, hear, hear a lot of callers. Uh, you get um, a talk show hosts. Uh, the, the hosts are really doing uh, uh, sharing of text that they may get. So it's, um, it's a challenge for them, too. Who knows? No one really knows. No one really has the answer. We'll uh, leave that and move on to another topic that I find extremely interesting because there's another, I should say was another, David Halberstam from New York who was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. I think, was he for the Times? I don't remember for sure and I forgot to write it down, but uh, it passed away a while back. But how often did you guys get mistaken for each other? <laughs> That's a funny story. Uh, it's not a very common name. Uh, we are distantly related, like fifth or sixth cousins. He passed, as you may know, in 2007, died tragically in a car accident uh, in, in California. He was out there to interview the late, great quarterback of the New York Giants, Y.A. Tittle. And uh, a student was driving him, and unfortunately, made a bad turn or something, and uh, Halberstam died. But, yes, we were confused, and I'll tell you a funny story about it. It's it's really entertaining. Um, you know uh, the great name Larry King, great uh, interviewer on TV, before that radio, for years on CNN. He used to have a column in USA Today, in the mid-80s, while I was doing St. John's and my name was a little bit visible, <laughs> paled to his, it always did, I get a call from a friend. This is before online times. And he says, you got to run down to a newsstand and get a picture or get a copy of uh, USA Today. He says, you got to see what Larry King wrote. He wouldn't tell me what he wrote. And again, you couldn't go online to get it because there was no such thing as online. I ran down to get the USA Today, find the Larry King column. In there, King writes, David Halberstam, Pulitzer Prize winning author, is spending the winter doing St. John's basketball on radio. <laughs> Larry King had his facts all wrong. So our name uh, got uh, interchanged uh, quite frequently because, again, it's not a common name. Now, uh, flash forward to 2007 uh, when uh, the unfortunate accident, the tragic death of, of the great writer David Halberstam. Uh, Phil Mushnick in the New York Post did a column and uh, had a, uh, a column in there how our names were always, were always being confused. And there were a lot of others. I had an apartment in Manhattan. I was single for many years. At about 1130 one night, the phone rings and I pick it up. And it's a young lady with a very nice voice. And she says, David, I just landed in town. What is your address? I don't have it written down and I'm about ready to get into a cab. 
sounded very tempting to me, Logan, but uh, I had to correct her and said, you don't have the right David Halberstam. <laughs> so we got confused quite a bit. I met him uh, two or three times uh, when he wrote the book on Michael Jordan. He was traveling the NBA circuit, and I was doing the NBA games at the time. So that was really, uh, we spent a few minutes then. You know, I read a story that I'll let you tell, but it wasn't always necessarily a positive recognition. Once, when he did pass away, it was important for you to quickly tell your family that it wasn't you and that it was him. Yeah, that was sort of interesting. It was a very unusual day for me. April 2007, I think. I was going down for my annual uh, eye exam, and I, was, I live in Broward County, in the Lauderdale area, and I was going out of Miami. And when they dilate your eyes, which they do for any standard eye exam, um, you can't really see very well afterwards because you need, you need sunglasses to drive. And I didn't bring a pair, so I drove home some 25 miles without being able to see, and I said to myself, God, Please get me home safely. I could barely see. I kept shading my eyes trying to drive home. I get home, and I was thankful that I did safely. I put the TV on, and there's news of CNN, on CNN, of David Halberstam's death. Um, the first thing I do is I call my mother, who's still alive, and she's 94 now, and I just wanted to assure her that I was okay because she was watching CNN. She always had CNN on in the house in New York, and I was in Florida. And she said, oh, yeah, I saw that. It's too bad that I, that I said, Mom, weren't you worried that it was me? She says, no, no, I, I had a pretty good idea. But I was concerned that uh, people would see that and, and think it was me um, because I was always on the road, and it said that David Halberstam was out in California. so. Anyone can mistake uh, me for David, knowing that I always travel. But <laughs> I called my wife, I called my mom and a couple of my kids and uh, told them you may hear that David Halberstam passed, but your dad is okay. So I had to take care of that. But uh, Bob Costas to this day says, you're the other David Halberstam. And we've become, you know, pretty friendly. One of the other things is we don't have a whole lot more time to keep going, but I wanted to touch on this, and it's an aspect of your childhood, is you grew up with a father who was a Holocaust survivor. How did they, and a gifted, noted physicist, how did both of those aspects kind of shape your childhood and how you grew up? Ah, well, now I think I'm talking to my shrink. Uh, my father was my hero. I mean, all our fathers, in many ways, I would think, you know, are heroes of sorts. And uh, uh, he lost his entire family. He was from Poland. Uh, his father, his mother, and two siblings were, were all gassed in Auschwitz. He himself survived uh, in the labor camps. And believe me, you know, lots of horror stories, but he did. And he came to America at age 19. Um, and uh, he went to college. Um, believe it or not, he could barely speak English. Uh, and he graduated Phi Beta Kappa. So he was my hero, brilliant man, um, physicist, worked on some of the software for the Patriot missile. 
Unfortunately, back then, like many, he smoked cigarettes and uh, died a young man at age 61 some 30 years ago. But uh, he was my hero, and sure, um, you know, you always sort of live with many of those um, tales of horrors, and we spoke a lot. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of bad things that happen, um, and certainly the Holocaust is about as bad as it ever got historically. But um, you, you've got to move on. And um, I always wanted to get into sports. That was my escape. And, uh, yeah, you know, that that's the story of my dad. And, you know, my dad was not the only survivor of the Holocaust. And his family, you know, they were just a few of six million who died. But, um, sure, you know, we all have things in our lives that uh, affect us. Uh, but I got very fortunate and have a great wife and a great family and uh, became a grandpa uh, recently. And I thought of my dad. I said, you know, as he fought his way through those ugly concentration camps and thought he would die any minute, here he is. So he's no longer alive, but here's a young baby who's a great grandson. So life goes on and we rebuild. So who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to right now, both on a national basis and maybe some local um, people in Miami or Colorado or some of the places that you spend time that you enjoy listening to when you don't have anything else to do? Yeah, well, I I did an article on our uh, site, sportsbroadcastjournal.com. I actually gave it a headline. I titled it Tears of Appreciation. The five guys, and they're not all alive, who I thought were great. What a quiet moment if I was listening alone in my home office. could literally bring a tear to me because how how good they were. Uh, Marty Glickman, um, who, who brought a passion and a descriptive power. Uh, Vince Scully, who's on another planet, just better than anyone who's ever been alive. Dick Enberg, who can bring the emotion and the human interest story into a broadcast better than um, anyone else. Bob Costas, no one who has a better command of the language, never gropes for the right word. And then those guys, for the most part, national, looking mostly local, but did some national work. Uh, certainly Enberg, Costas, and Scully, well-known nationally. And the fifth guy... A fellow I may have mentioned, Joe Tate, longtime voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers. No one, in my mind, uh, connected the dots as impeccably on a broadcast as he. And I used to listen to him a lot because his games were on 3WE in Cleveland. They came in clear as a bell at night in New York. And uh, he, in many ways, was my hero. Today, there are not many who um, can do it as well or close to as well as any of those five I just mentioned. But there are guys I enjoy listening to. Gene Deckerhoff, who does Florida State, great gravelly voice, very intense. Um, And the beauty of listening to him is even though he calls Florida State we on the air, you'll never know who's winning or losing based on his enthusiasm when you first tune in. So I enjoy his college football. I enjoy Eli Gold. Uh, who does Alabama. Um, today, 
uh, once Scully left baseball, there's a, a big, big drop off. I like uh, Joe Castiglione, sort of laid back and, and does the Red Sox. Uh, I like Pat Hughes in Chicago, uh, who does the Cubs, as you know. So there are still some very good ones, uh, but not the way they were. Merrill Reese, who does uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, very descriptive, right on it when when it comes to, to football. Um, those are some of the folks uh, I enjoy. Sports talk, I like Colin Cowherd. He's deep, he's knowledgeable, and he sort of takes a 30,000-foot view. So if you ask me for my knee-jerk of talent, I may have missed one or two, uh, but those guys are good. Today, I would say in the NBA, I like Al McCoy. Um, I like Brian Wheeler uh, in Portland. Um, and um, Steve Holman, who does the uh, Atlanta Hawks. And unfortunately, the best hockey guy was just let go because of the reasons we talked about earlier, finances. And that's Chuck Caton with the Carolina Hurricanes. So I don't know if I'm missing any sports here, but uh, you got a pretty good overview. I meant to talk about this much earlier in the show, but we just kind of got off, went off on some interesting tangents. We didn't get there, but you started the sportsbroadcastjournal.com, which is basically journalism about sportscasting. There's not much else that I know about out there anyway that's like it. What was the the inspiration behind that, and how did it come about? Well, uh, again, my career was winding down, and uh, thankfully I've saved enough to uh, finance my my uh, retirement, and uh, my wife still works, so, you know, that doesn't hurt. And uh, I wanted to do something in sports broadcasting that, I could do on my own, that I won't have a boss. No one will say, you can't do that, you can do it. Plus, it's something that's needed. It's a, it's really a, a site that's made for the, uh, really for the, for the industry more than anything else. People in the industry uh, would want to uh, read this website because it's geared for them. And there is no such thing. Um, you've got awful announcing, but I think that's more mainstream. They do cover broadcasting, but they're trying to reach the fan too. Fans of broadcasting read my site, but uh, it's it's growing. A lot of people, I'm telling you, I look at my my uh, analytics, my metrics every day, and there are more and more new users. So. Um, you know, I'll cover all sorts of stories, profiles. I've worked with you on a few of them. Um, do Today I had a piece on Bob Lamy leaving. I had a piece on a minor league announcer by the name of Tom Nichols who does the Dayton Dragons in his 30 years and all the crazy stories he's experienced. Um, and, and what differentiates the good from the bad? I have lists of the top five announcers in the top 10 markets in America. So it's anything from lists to profiles um, to an occasional uh, complaint. Uh, for instance, uh, that Brent Musburger is not in the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame as a broadcaster. Um, so I cover the industry. 
And uh, I can see from those who uh, who dial me up, you get a lot of broadcasters who, who dial in and uh, get on the site and enjoy it. And they're, I've gotten a lot of good people to do interviews. So uh, that means we're doing something right. So I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to make this profitable or get my first time of revenue. But for the moment, I'm pretty pleased and I've gotten great response. Well, I imagine that someone with your uh, sales and sponsorship experience will probably figure it out. I can tell you I personally, I, I hadn't heard about it until you asked me to contribute a few things to it, but since then it's been on, if not my daily, at least my weekly uh, reading that I check on all the the sites on that could pertain to broadcasting. I personally really enjoy it. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, there are more people out there like you, and I hope to continue to work with you because uh, the interviews you do uh, don't have a, a, a window that uh, you need from a time perspective. So, um, you know, you can go on with a, with some of your uh, uh, interviewees, and uh, I've enjoyed so many of them. And, and these guys open up, and they tell you about their careers, and uh, it's it's something that's good for any budding broadcaster. They want to hear about the background of some of the guys who are successful. Um, they can uh, they can tune into your show. If somebody wanted to reach out to you for any reason, how would they do so? Uh, very easy. They can te- they can email me. Uh, I am at Halby at HalbyGroup.com. Let me spell that. It's H is in Harry A. L is in Larry, B is in boy, Y, Halby, that's my nickname, Halby at halbygroup.com. It's that easy. All right. Well, once again, we are visiting with David J. Halberstam on the Say the Damn Score podcast, and I really appreciate your time and enjoyed our conversation very much. Same here, Logan, and continued success to you. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks again for listening, and if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or the big red button on top of SayTheDamnScore.com. You can also follow the show on social media by following at Radio underscore Logan on Twitter or on Facebook.com slash SayTheDamnScore. Lastly, I always appreciate honest feedback, whether that's a quick email using the contact form on saythedamscore.com or an iTunes review. They help make the show better, and I appreciate it. That's it for episode 80. I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.